Let me tell you what we're talking about for the next four weeks, and I'm going to read the scripture, and we'll get right into the message for today. But I believe, I believe in my deepest heart of hearts that the good life is a life lived for something bigger than yourself. Let me say that one time again. I believe that the good life, the best life, is a life lived for something bigger than yourself. You weren't designed, you weren't created to live for self. To live for self is a small, small world. And if you pursue happiness, you'll miss it. You don't get happiness by pursuing it. You get happiness by living for something bigger than yourself. And when you live for a cause and a reason and a purpose that's bigger than yourself and bigger than your life, when you give yourself over to something grand and beautiful, what happens is you get happiness, you get meaning, you get fulfillment. You see, God created you and created me and put a, a, a divine spark inside of all of us, this longing to know that our life matters and makes a difference. And so for the next four weeks, I want to be talking about this bigger life and what you're going to need, what you're going to need to live it, what you're going to need to embrace it, what you're going to need to complete it. And, and the first thing you're going to need is this. The first thing you're going to need to live this bigger life is faith. It is the faith to believe that life is not just one day after another. That life has a purpose to it. That life has a meaning to it. And that not just that, but that God has enrolled you and called you to be involved in something great. I look at it, you and look at the congregation every weekend and I know that we're all asking those questions, what is my life about? And so often the emptiness and the loneliness that we feel that sometimes leads us into destructive behaviors and lifestyles and things that undo us often is the result of us not seeing a bigger vision for life. I'm going to tell you something. If you're struggling with loneliness, boredom, frustration, unhappiness, uh, all those things, uh, the answer is to get something bigger. To get your eyes off yourself and to get yourself on something bigger than yourself. That's essentially what this passage of Scripture is about this morning in Hebrews chapter 12 and why I've chosen it. Um, he uses the term here, race. Let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. But when we say the word run, we could also say uh, not just a race, we could say your assignment. Run, live your assignment that God's given you. You could say your mission. Uh, we could say your purpose. The idea is that every one of us at some point has to understand what it is that God wants us to do with our life and then run and do it and achieve it. And it talks about endurance and talks about getting our eyes on something bigger than ourselves. Here's what he says. He says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now let me help you understand the imagery here. Uh, you don't see, you think of big puffy pillowy clouds in the sky. But to, the, to a Greek audience, uh, written in the Greek, or to a Hebrew audience, they would understand something a little bit different. When he talks about a cloud of witnesses, what he's talking about is essentially a Greek amphitheater. And in the Greek amphitheater, uh, they were large, they could accommodate thousands of people. Have you ever been to a stadium and sat in the nosebleed seats, set up in the clouds? 
That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the clouds in the top of the stadium. And he's saying that all these people who have lived their life and given their lives to something great are now sitting in the stands watching. And now it's my turn, it's your turn, it's our turn to get down on the field and to run the race, to play the game, to not be a participant in the stands, to move out of the stands. And not only that, not only, not only are they watching us, but they're also, they're also cheering for us, cheering for us. You know, and the question I want to ask you is, who has inspired you? Who are those who cheer for you? And the other question is, someday who will you be cheering for? It's a great question. So he writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's give our all to this project. Let's, let's go all the way. Let's not hold anything back, he says. And let us run with perseverance. Put the word stamina there, energy, power, conviction. The race marked out for us implying that God has marked out something for us to do with our life. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now pick up on what he's saying here. He says the joy set before him, what he's essentially saying is that the joy came from having his life given to something important and special and noble, giving his life for other people. He suffered and endured the shame of the cross, but he enjoyed it joyfully because his life was about something bigger than him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Consider him as you run your race so that you will not grow weary and you won't lose heart in the midst of the journey that God's called you to run. I know somebody today is looking for something to do. I know that somebody today is feeling weary and tired. I know that someone today needs to be elevated to something higher, something bigger, something more noble. I know I'm speaking to somebody, somebody today. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that when you run your race, and you think you're at the end of all, you burned all your carbs. You have no energy left. You can't take another step. What he's saying, you still got more. You still got more inside. Now, I want to tell you something. Whenever I preach, I always, always struggle, always struggle with, with this dilemma. How do I start the sermon? The hardest part of writing a message or being a speaker is where do you start? What's the place to grab the audience listening? And really, when you preach a sermon, there are two different ways you can approach it. And you go listen to a sermon, and you'll hear a minister starts in one of two places. They will either start with the human condition or the gospel solution. The human condition is... What I just started with this morning, everybody's longing for meaning. Everybody's longing for something important. Everybody wants to know that their life counts, their life matters. The gospel solution is then, what does the gospel say to our life? How does the gospel answer the questions that we have in life? Are you with me this morning? You're kind of quiet. 
You understand what the human condition is? Because you're living it. There's the human condition. It's what you live through. It's what you're going through. It's what you face every day when you get up. It's struggle, fear, anxiety, all those kinds of things. And then there is, so that's the human condition. And the other is the gospel solution. So I never know where to start. You know, do I start with the gospel solution? Just start with the gospel. Here's the gospel. Now, here's why it matters. Or do I start with the human condition? Because if you go to a speaker's club, they'll tell you you start with the human condition because that's your hook. That's how you get people interested. Where do you start one way or the other? See, what I'm doing all morning is I'm starting at different places this sermon this morning to keep myself interested. So, so, so let, me, let, me, let, me, let me start let me start this service with the human condition. Okay? The hook. So, I was listening to an interview with Philip by, uh, by Philip Roth several years ago. Now, you may not be familiar with Philip Roth, but Philip Roth is an American author. Philip Roth wrote the Pulitzer, won the Pulitzer for a book called American Pastoral. Uh, he also wrote a book recently, the one I'm referring to now, called Every Man. Every Man. If you read his work... You'll, you'll understand that basically Roth is an uh, uh, excellent writer, very descriptive novelist, um, has won every possible award to win for his narrative writing, but you'll discover very quickly he has sort of a dark point of view. Um, he didn't say this, but I assume this is true. If you read his books, that basically he basically says in his book, there's this life and there's nothing else. Religion is nonsense. And it's unhelpful in the end. And as they were interviewing him, they asked him about this book he wrote, Every Man. So basically, Every Man was written at the end of Ross' life as he's reflecting on his own mortality, his own death. And it's about a book reflecting on the subject of death, suffering, loss, and those sorts of things about the death of this man. Now, you think, gosh, what a bummer to talk about on a Sunday morning, a reflection on death. Wow, we came to church, preachers talking about death. Well, it's important. Because in the book, basically, this man concludes, he basically um, goes to synagogue, gets bar mitzvahed, and never returns to the synagogue because he is convinced that life is meaning, that life itself has no grand design, no scheme to it. There is no grand creator, no organizing principle to life. You just go live your life the best you can. And all life is just human biology. You live, you die, and that's it. Now, I, I listened to that, and I thought to myself, wow, that's really, that's really dark, isn't it? It's hard, to, it's hard for me as a person of faith to, em, to, embrace, to embrace that idea. So I spent a little time thinking about it, and I realized, you know, regardless of his point of view, or maybe I feel differently about the way he thinks, he's really raising an important question, though, in the book. He's giving you his answer. Everybody's answering that same question, what is life about? Does my life matter? Will I make the most? If you only have one life to live, what are you going to do with your life? Will your life matter? Does it count? When I'm gone, will people remember me? What am I going to give my life to? Right? Those are big questions. Why am I here? Now, a few years ago, I watched a movie uh, called About Smith, and probably I'm the only person who ever watched it. 
Um, but it starred Jack Nicholson, and you've seen it. Dolly's seen it. So um, about Smith, anybody else see it? Yeah, Jack Nicholson is a good, good movie. And it's about, um, sorry, we got a couple actuaries over here. But it's about an actuary. Spends his whole life working for an insurance company. 40 years in the same company, Woodman of the World. He's their actuary. And at the end of his career, he packs all these boxes, you know, those cardboard boxes, puts in files and folders, organizing 40 years of work, packs it neatly in his office. Here's a picture of him right here. That's the day of his retirement. And he's left the boxes behind for the young man who takes his job so he'll have what he needs to do his job. So he dreams of retirement, goes into his retirement, buys a Winnebago, going to travel around the country with his wife who suddenly dies. And all of a sudden he founds himself sitting in a home every day, growing grayer and older and tireder, becoming depressed, disappointed, discouraged, frustrated, and just lonely and dead. Do you know for a lot of people in the world, the day they retire is the day they begin to, to die is because they have no reason to live. And so, like a lot of men, he goes back to the place of work uh, thinking that everybody would be glad to see him, and he gets back and remembers, finds out soon that he's been soon forgotten. You know, he's... He's gone. It was like he was never there. He goes and meets the young man who has replaced him and offers to help him with his work. And the young man thanks him and politely declines the offer. Dejected, Warren Smith walks out of his office, down the stairs, and out the back of the building and finds all his life work stacked beside the dumpster. What is my life about? That's the human condition. You see, the human condition is, is that for a lot of us, we begin our lives without thinking about what we want our life to be about. And we go charging down some path, down some career path, and then some point, at some point in every person's life, most every person's life, we wonder, what is it about? Someday is all the things that I've worked toward or the things that I've attempted to achieve, are they just like here at the dumpster? Is this it? Is this what it's really, really going to all be about? And the sad thing is for a lot of people, they, they feel this tugging inside of them. You know, you feel it. Don't you feel it like... You know, there's got to be more. But what? What is it? What is it? Here's what I'm convinced of, folks, about the gospel of Jesus. I'm absolutely, completely convinced of this one true thing, that when we talk about Jesus to the world, we're preaching the wrong message. We're not giving them the most persuasive reason to be a Jesus follower. Okay? If you want to reach a Philip Roth, don't tell Philip Roth about heaven. Talk to him about life before death. 
You see, what we do when we talk about Jesus, when we tell people the gospel, we tell them that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that when you die, you get to go to heaven and it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And listen, that's a great thing. I mean, it's a great thing to know that I'm forgiven, that someone loved me enough to forgive me, to die for me, to be my high priest, to take my sin upon himself, to offer his life. That's a powerful, beautiful, amazing, great gift to know that when my daddy died, that my daddy's not just in a hole. I believe that. But I'm not sure that's the most persuasive argument for Christianity. It doesn't address the most heartfelt need, which is why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my life supposed to be about? What am I supposed to do? And this is the gospel. Jesus said this, if you want to get life, you got to give it away. You try to hold on to it, you're going to lose it. That the big life of life for others, of giving and living generously, the life we see lived in Jesus is the life of meaning and purpose. So that's what happens. This, remember one day this rich man comes up to Jesus and says, hey Jesus, I want the gift of eternal life. I want to really live. And Jesus says, this is what you need to do. He says, you put all your trust in your stuff and you made your life about filling your barn and making your barn bigger and bigger and bigger with your stuff. But he says, that's not life. Life is found in giving it away. So take all your stuff and box it all up and give it all away and come follow me. Choose something bigger than what you've been pursuing. And you know what? The man makes a choice. I choose that over Jesus. You know, later in this chapter, I got to tell you, I'm really going off script now, but if you, if, you read, if you read a little bit on in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about Esau. And you know what it says about Esau? It says Esau traded away his birthright for a bowl of soup. Jacob comes, is cooking dinner, and Esau comes in from the field, and he's hungry. So I'm so hungry, he says, I'll, I'll give you anything for that soup. He said, well, give me your birthright. He lost his inheritance for a bowl of soup. And, and it is so true that what happens again and again and again is we make an exchange of something meaningful and beautiful for something tangible and, and temporary like stuff and achievements and things that don't really matter in the long run. You see, the whole point of what Jesus is talking about in the gospel over and over again, he's talking about a life that's bigger than ourselves. And that's why this letter to the Hebrews addresses so powerfully the human condition. I just love Hebrews because at the beginning of Hebrews, you know what it says? It says that Jesus is the exact representation of what God looks like. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He is the radiance of the glorious, beautiful image of God. And he's higher than anything in the universe. He sustains the world by his very words. But he says the gospel is that this, this God and Son of God became a human being and lowered himself into our humanity, became flesh and became blood and suffered and died and gave his life for the joy of the cross. He, endu he endured the cross for the joy of giving himself for others. And this one who gave his life away calls us brothers and sisters. Wow. 
We, we should just be in awe of that. So the reason Hebrews was written then was he was writing it to save his church because the church had fallen into complacency and apathy. People just didn't care. They lost their side of the gospel. Some were abandoning their faith. And so over and over again in the, in the, in the letter to the Hebrews, what you hear is don't give up. Uh, 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 resist the urge to quit. Stop walking away. You know, there was all kinds of things. There was uh, heresy and there was uh, apathy and there was persecution in the church and people were walking away. And he was saying, he was saying grab hold of it. Don't let it go. So you get then, okay, to the 11th chapter. He says, by faith God has created all things. We have faith that God created the heavens and the earth. And then he says, by faith Noah did this. Noah built a boat. By faith Abraham left home and went to a new country when he was old. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, David. By faith, Solomon. By faith, Samuel. By faith, Gideon. And it tells this story of all these people who've gone on before us, who've lived these lives of faith. And then it says an interesting thing at the end of the 11th chapter. It says, none of them were able to fulfill the work that they were called to do. No one was ever, no one was ever able to finish the work because the work goes on and on and on and on. And then it begins at chapter 12. He says, look, they're all up there in the stands. Now it's your turn to give your life to something bigger than you. So he says, shed everything, get rid of everything, learn that race, give your life to what matters, give your life to what's important. And at the end of your life, you're going to be looking at some boxes sitting by the dumpster. Because you do what Jesus said, which you have invested in treasures that are not consumed by moth and rust, but eternal things that last beyond your lifetime because you've invested in something real and powerful and beautiful. I can't tell you what that thing is for you. But I do have a general idea of a direction to move toward. Just start looking at the life of Jesus and try to be more like him. Sometimes we look too hard at something too big when it's just simply just trying to love the person that's next to you in the way that Jesus loved them. Loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, finding a way to serve and to give. And you know what happens over time? Over time, something bigger begins to emerge, a pattern in your life. So here's my message for this morning as we start this series to you is to say this to you. Psalm 139, David says that David says he believes that God knitted him together in his mother's womb, that God had a purpose for his life. Let me say this to you this morning. Your life is not just one random thing after another. You have purpose. You have a reason to be here. And if you're going to find that purpose and live that purpose, you're going to need faith. Faith. 